I'm Neil Carter, the pastor at Rocky River Presbyterian Church. Thank you for joining us through our podcast. Let me extend a personal invitation as well to join us at RRPC in person on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. This is the Easter season. We explore together resurrection hope as a people of faith. The Lord has risen. The Lord has risen indeed. May you be renewed and empowered, comforted and challenged as we listen to and for God's Word together today. Hi, I'm Neil Carter, the pastor at Rocky River Presbyterian Church, and thanks for joining in to our sermon podcast today. We hope you find God's love, grace, and challenge as you listen to and for God's Word. Our gospel lesson today is from the book of John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, And it can be found on page 93 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, The temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone. The word of the Lord. So it's Elie Weissel, he's the writer, professor, political activist, the late Nobel laureate, uh, Holocaust survivor, once wrote, God made man because he loves stories. I've shared that with you before. John Shea is a, a narrative theologian, and he, and he says it this way, we are addicted to stories. That's what we like, and that's what we do. Humankind is addicted to stories, he says, no matter our mood, in reverie or expectation, in panic or in peace, we can be found stringing together incidents, unfolding episodes. We turn our pain into narrative so we can bear it, We turn our ecstasy into narrative so we can prolong it. We tell our stories to live. 
Think about the past few weeks in our country, uh, students in Florida, we listen to a lot of them on television, uh, and what do they do? These kids tell their story, as John Shea says, to, to bear, to bear the pain of what they've been through. On the other side, the ecstasy part, think about it, when the Olympics, the Olympics just finished up, and America won a gold medal in curling, of all things. Wow, so we keep telling that story over and over again to prolong the elation that we have the best athletes in the world at athletic sweeping. I mean, it's pretty cool. You know? and so, so they want a gold, so we keep telling. The words, any parent has heard this, tell me a story, tell me a story. And we use that word, those, those four words, simple words, for a child's desperation, trying to stay awake just a little longer at night. Tell me a story. Or these simple words that embody this universal longing which each and every one of us, from early childhood to old age, we tell stories. As a matter of fact, we find the cycle of life itself within the classical narrative structure, right? There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. In our house, we tell it this way. We're born, we shop at Walmart, we die. <laughs> That's the narrative story. And faith goes in the same manner. Faith is the same manner. We tell stories. Very few people want to sit around and talk about systematic theology, okay? In undergrad, I took systematic theology one, two, three, and four and I mean, people just don't line up to take classes like that, okay? Because today we're going to talk about hermotiology or pneumatology or eschatology and then break it down in systems point one, two, three, and four. It's, it's about as exciting as it sounds, okay? But that's not how we do faith, is it? The way we want to do faith is, is we tell stories. And John Shea says it this way, we gather people, we break bread, we tell stories, we gather together like we're doing now. We break bread like we're going to do in the fellowship hall later. And we tell our stories. We pull out the gospel lesson and we tell our story. And today's story is an important story in the gospel. And, and, and this is why I think that's so. Because this story, Jesus turning over the tables, the money changers in the temple, is in all four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's in all four Sometimes you're going to have stories that are in two Gospels. Uh, sometimes you're going to have stories in three Gospels. Very seldom are stories in all four Gospels. And so when they're in all four Gospels, that tells you one thing. That's a pretty important story in the early church foundation. And so Jesus handling the money changers, tearing over the tables. Stop making my, house, my father's house a marketplace, as he says in John. Now in Mark, he says something a little different, but again... Here's Jesus turning over the tables. And so when we tell this story in church, then people get quick and they go, oh, my gosh, what, what are we talking about? Fundraisers in church. You can't do that. Uh, car, youth car washes. Those are taboo. Chili cook-offs. You can't have those. Jesus would be upset because he would come and turn over the money tables. Hot dog sales. Raise money for missions. This is not good. And certainly, certainly this has to be opposed and against and a shot at the Catholics, and Jesus would come in and turn over the bingo tables, right? Because you can't have bingo. Jesus would have to be anti-bingo. Well, I hate to break it to all of us, but this is not about bingo. 
And this story is not about sales pitches in the vestibule. It's not about youth uh, chili cook-offs. And Jesus is not anti-Catholic or anti-bingo. This story is about Jesus disrupting the status quo in the temple to say this, this can't stay the way things have always been. And yes, it is in all four Gospels, but we are normally used to this story being in the last week of Jesus' life, right? When you get to the Holy Week, Jesus goes in and he comes back to Jerusalem for the last time before he goes to the cross. And, and it turns into this scene of crisis and Jesus turns over these money tables and it's the evidence that, that the uh, church rulers, the temple rulers have been looking for. The aha, we gotcha moment to get Jesus. Jesus is a troublemaker. See, we've told you he was. He's one of those zealot folks. He's out to overturn the government. And so now we've got to do away with him and hang him and try him and hang him on the cross. And that's the way it's told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke at the end of, of Jesus' life. Jesus' outburst in the temple, and that leads to his criminal trial. But John's gospel, if you noticed today when Kathy read it, it's in chapter 2. That's at the beginning of Jesus' life, not at the end. So what's John doing here, and what's going on with this story? So does Jesus chase the money changers out twice? That's really, really, really highly unlikely because you don't get away with that once, much less twice. You don't mess around with people's money once and get away with it, which Jesus didn't because they did try him after that. But so you don't get away with it twice for sure. So John is doing something a little different with this story today. He's taking it from the end of Jesus' life where the other three and moving it up at the beginning of Jesus' life. Because it is important for us to tell our stories. We have to tell them. But it's also important when and where we tell them as well. So why would John tell this story early in Jesus' life? Yeah, the others use it to lead to Jesus' arrest. But for John, Jesus' actions in the temple are this so early. They're at this point where in his version, he wants it at the beginning and not the end. But I think this is why John tells this story so close to the front. That he's showing this is the, this is the Messiah Jesus wants to be. This is the Messiah that John wants us to see who Jesus is. So we gather together, we break our bread, we tell our stories. And this story he tells early on. So he sets it in the mind of the people who are reading his gospel. This is the kind of Messiah I want. This is the kind of Messiah we want people to see. One who comes in, turns over the status quo and says, it's not going to be like that anymore. It's a new thing. And so he goes it and he tells this story in chapter 2. And so he also tells this other story in chapter 2 of John's gospel and crams them together. Okay? And they kind of fit together in a real important way. And the other story in John chapter 2 is a, is a story that Episcopalians and Presbyterians love alike. And that's where Jesus takes 180 gallons of water and turns it into wine. Okay? My Episcopalian friends think that's the greatest story in the world. But, but you, you know, that Jesus comes and, and, the, and the, the, he's at the wedding at Cana. And, and they run out of wine midweek. And that's pretty embarrassing to the host. You just don't want to do that. And so his mother comes and says, what do you do? So Jesus turns the water into wine. But what people often forget 
is this little tidbit that we leave out of that story, and that the water, the 180 gallons, are from the, the water of purification. They're, the water was for purification rites. Very important part of that story that we tell as we gather, we break bread, we tell our stories. You can't leave that part out. Because purification was a very, very important part of the life and the structure of who they were in Jesus' day. Purification. Yeah, it would be cool to invite Jesus to a party knowing that he's probably going to turn water into wine, but there's a more important part. It's about the purification aspects. You see, they had this real distinction. You had to be pure to be in the temple, okay? So certain things were pure and certain things weren't. So women are impure for seven days after giving birth to a son. 14 days impure after giving birth to a daughter. You see what they're saying there? Yeah. I, I, I don't make this stuff up. I'm just reporting it, okay? Don't shoot the messenger. Dead bodies are impure, okay? People with blemishes, leprosy and the like, impure. Certain foods were impure, right? Uh, anything, almost anything sexual was impure. Very taboo. And the list got longer and longer and longer and longer. So... As, as Marcus Bord, he's a theologian, he writes this, that the, the purification system of their day was just long, and it started separating people out. You're in, you're out. You're in, you're out. And what it did was created this world of social boundaries of certain people were, were pure and certain people weren't. And, and it also came into play with who had means, and who did not. Because if you had the means, you could buy your way to pure, and if you didn't, you couldn't. So changing the water to wine was using the purification water, and Jesus is saying everybody's included here. Nobody's set apart. And so it's no accident that the other story in chapter 2, I don't think, has to do with purification as well of the temple. Because... Here these people come to the temple and they had to become they had to go through the purification system by making sacrifices to get into the temple. And that system was also a part of purification as well. And so you'd come in and you most certainly couldn't use impure coins like Roman coins, and so you had to have the money changers. So you'd change your Roman coins for the coins that were used in the temple. So that was one thing that set certain people apart from the others. And also just the price of certain animals that you're using to sacrifice. So Jesus comes in and says, this system, I don't like this system in my father's house. It's out. I'm turning it over, kicking it out so that this place is open for all kinds of people. All kinds of people get to come here whether they're Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female, everybody gets to come through the doors, whether you have the right coins or the wrong coins. This place is a place, as Mark says, it's my father's house, is a place of prayer for all nations. Everybody gets to come through the doors. And that's the kind 
of Jesus the Messiah that John wanted to get out from very early on in his gospel. This guy is the Messiah we want. And this is the kind of church I want us to be. That's what John was saying to his early writers. We want Jesus to be this guy. It's a new social vision that is a community that's shaped by God's compassion, not a purity system that we've set up that these people are pure and these aren't. That's the kind of Messiah we want. That's the Jesus who throws these tables out and says, enough of this. We have God's compassion, not this. So we gather people together, we break our breads, and we break our bread and we tell our stories. And that's what John's gospel is full of. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well? She's impure because of the bloodline she has and the lifestyle she's living. And Jesus says God's compassion over purity. The woman who was caught in adultery and they were threatened to stone her to death. It's in John's gospel. Again, Jesus is saying God's compassion over y'all's purity system. And then also saying that there's a sheepfold out there who aren't apart yet. And we welcome them in. That's also in John's gospel. So it's not a strange thing that John moves this story about Jesus cleansing the temple real early in his gospel as opposed to late. He says, you know, because throughout John's gospel, he said, here's the new commandment I want y'all to know. You want to be faithful disciples? Love one another. That's the Messiah I am, and that's the church I want you to be. Love one another. So, it's not about garage sales or chili cook-offs or anything like that. It's about the kind of Messiah we want. So we gather our people together, we break our bread and we tell our stories, and we say, what kind of church do we want to be? If our Messiah is like that, that's the person we're following. What kind of people do we want to be? And what story do we want to tell about us? Well, Betty Meadows, you know, is the uh, general presbyter, and she's about to retire and move on as we've hired a new presbyter for our presbytery. And she was with the session a couple weeks ago. And, and she has this story that she tells about y'all, about us, that she says, this is Rocky River when I think of Rocky River Presbyterian Church. A few years ago, when y'all were dedicating the building, uh, y'all might have to help me with the story a little, but she tells it this way, that y'all were having the dedication and you're having the meal and there was a car wreck across the street, right, at the telephone pole. It, it's where everybody loves to hit that telephone pole, okay? I'm telling you. If there's a target in the world, it's that telephone pole. And um, they love it. So they hit it during the meal. And, 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 and her notion and recollection of who Rocky River is, is that people stopped, rushed out, helped everybody, took care of everybody, didn't care about it, it was hot or sweaty or that there was blood, this, that, and the other, but made sure that you took care of these other people. And then, ha, came back, sat down, ate together again. Pretty close to the story, right? But that's her notion of who we are, that we gather to celebrate together, that we gather to fellowship together, and then in a moment when someone else out there needs us, we just set down our forks, get up, go do what we need to do to make sure people are taken care of in our little corner of the world, and then come back and celebrate 
and gathered together. That is what she thinks. That's the church she understands us to be. So who do we think we are? Who do we want to be? Our Messiah is one who comes in and turns over tables and says, man, this, this old stuff just doesn't work. I want to make sure that everybody is welcome here. So on Thursday nights, I come over and the scouts are meeting and Girl Scouts are running all around and Grief Share's here and there we're reaching out to people in this community who aren't, aren't folks who aren't all connected to who we are, but they come to share their, their pain and we journey with them and we make space for them. And that's our story. That's who we are. That's the church we want to be. That we open our doors and we kick aside the tables of the way things used to be and we're not worried so much about purity systems, but we're worried about God's compassion and saying, this is who we are right here on our corner. We get together, we celebrate, we fellowship, and we reach out to those people who are hurting in our community. That's our story. That's who we are as God's people. That's the church we want to be. We're simply saying, we don't have all our purity systems work out, but we want to say we're a church of welcome. Come here and gather with us and worship together and worship God. That's who we are. So we gather together, we break our bread, and we tell our stories, and we set aside purity whatevers and throw those tables away and say God's compassion is the most important thing to who we are. That's our story, and we're sticking to it. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us stand and affirm that which we believe. This is Neil Carter thanking you once again for listening to our podcast at Rocky River Presbyterian Church. You can also visit us at our website, complete with our online donations for those wishing to give. Come check us out at our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter. Or if you're in the Harrisburg, North Carolina area, feel free to drop in and visit us in person. Thanks again for being with us today.